the book of Numbers. Maybe you can uh, go ahead and open your Bibles there. We're going to take a quick survey. So we've been making our way through the Old Testament. Uh, I did a class just on introduction. Two classes on Genesis, one on Exodus, and two on Leviticus. So we're going to try to do one class on Numbers today. Let's see if we can we can do that. I think we can. And uh, we might we might do two on Deuteronomy. It's such an important book. They're all important, but Deuteronomy really sums up the law. It sums up all the laws given in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and prepares the people to go into the land. And so there's some real interpretive challenges there, but a lot of good meat for us to digest as well. Well, let me open in prayer, and we'll start with Numbers. Father, it's good to join with other believers on the Lord's Day, a day of worship, a day where we lift our hearts to you and seek the scriptures and pray and sing together. And This morning in this class, we look to your word. We want to get a, a concept, an idea of this book that you've given us, a book for our instruction, one that should teach us. Let us see how holy you are. Let us see how sinful we are. And let us see that you have provided a way, the way, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that we might see Christ even in the Old Testament. And help us to understand how you have set aside a people for your own possession. We pray that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, book of Numbers. Uh, numbers 36, chapters long. I'm not going to read them all this morning. Why is it called Numbers. What's the title? Where do we get the title from? Anybody know? There's a lot of numbers in the book of Numbers. It starts off that way, and then near the end, there's another big group of numbers. And so in Hebrew, the Hebrew word midbar uh, means in the wilderness. So um, you'll see in the first line, then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness, verse 1. So in the wilderness is the first word. That's all combined into one word in Hebrew. That's the very first word. So the first five books, they just call it whatever the first word is. Which, I haven't spoke a lot about this, but it really teaches us that they saw the Pentateuch, the first five books, as one book with five parts. We think of it as five different books. They thought of it as a, a big book with five scrolls. And so um, it, they're both right. They are five different books, obviously, because they had a name for each one but also they saw it more intimately connected than we might see today. In the Septuagint, it's called a rhythmoi, which in Greek means numbers. So our, our names for the book in English often come from the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. So it goes from Hebrew to Greek to English, and that's where we get our titles usually. So the book of Numbers. Who wrote it? Moses. If you're conservative and you take the, uh, the Bible at its word, uh, liberals, of course, reject almost every book of the Bible and its true authorship. Even if it says Paul wrote it, they'll reject it and say Paul didn't write it. And so there's a there's a big attack on the first five books of the Bible, uh, trying to say that Moses didn't write it. It was written much later. It was made up. We'll even have a interpretive issue later on that issue. What's the theme? What do we see throughout the book? Well, the big theme is wandering in the wilderness. Even though it's called numbers because there, there is a lot of numbers, the theme is really wandering around in the wilderness. Or we could say rebellion, rebellion. Or we could say complaining or grumbling. So what we see is a faithful Yahweh, a faithful God, and a very fickle Israel. 
In other words, the law at Sinai did not change Israel's heart. The law was never designed to change hearts. We see that in the New Testament, and we see that in the Old Testament. Now, when Paul comes along, and even Jesus to an extent, and they're talking to the Pharisees, by the day of Jesus, everyone thought the law could save you. If you just followed the law, you could be righteous with God. But that was never the way in God intended it in the Old Testament. God didn't give one gospel in the Old Testament and then change it to the new. He didn't say in the old, obey the law and be saved, and in the new, obey the law and be saved. Or, I'm sorry, obey Christ, obey the gospel, believe in Christ and be saved. He didn't change it up. It's always the same. He rescued them out of Egypt. He brought them out. He delivered them. He saved them. They said, thank you. We are your people. You've chosen us. You're our God. God said, okay, here's the law. I'm going to live with you now. I'm going to be with you now. I'm going to live in your camp amongst your people. And he physically had a presence there with the, with the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke on the mercy seat. And he met with, thank you, he met with Moses on the mountain. And so God is there in their presence. And what do they do? They complain. They grumble. Which means there's a lot of unbelievers in the mix. People who say, well, I'm Israel, but they're really not truly in their heart converted. And so they grumble. And they're gonna, you're going to see that almost all of them die. Only two survive that generation. Uh, the purpose, if we were to take the theme and turn it into the purpose, why was it written? To trace the judgment of God and his patience to prepare Israel to enter the promised land in spite of their rebellion. So even though they rebel, even though they turn away from him, he will prepare a people to enter the land. It's not going to be the same generation that he saved out of Egypt. But he's going to test them. He's going to try them. And in the end, the generation that goes in is a much more righteous and holy generation than the one who came out of Egypt. What are the years? It's 39 years. So we often say 40 years in the wilderness. They were in the wilderness for 40 years. The first year, though, is just from Egypt to Sinai. And then at Sinai, that starts the next 39 years. So look at uh, verse 1 again. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. So he's still at the mountain where he received the Ten Commandments. In the tent of meeting, so they built the tabernacle. The book of Exodus is done. And on the first of the second month and the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So one year to get to Sinai and receive the commandments and the law and build the tabernacle. Then Leviticus is given, all the laws in Leviticus are given in about 30 days, the beginning of that second year. And now we're into the second month and we pick up with the history of the nation of Israel. This is probably 1444 B.C., if we take it, uh, or 1443. Just, it depends on what kind of calendar you use. But uh, I think the exodus from Egypt was 1444. So it either starts... 1445 or 1444 when they exited Egypt. And then you would set the next year as the year for the book of Numbers. And then 39 years. What's the outline? I think this is a great outline. It's very easy for us to digest. The first 10 chapters is about ordering the people. Not ordering the telling them what to do, but putting them in order. God is a God of order. I know people don't want to accept that today. But there's an order to it. We're going to see it right here in the book of Numbers. There was an order to creation. There was an order to God choosing Abraham. There was an order to all that God has done. And so here he has this people. 
And they're just disordered, and he's going to order them. But they're not going to like it, and they're going to become very disordered. And so 11 through 25, those chapters uh, disorder among the people in the wilderness. They're going to be punished for it. They're going to wander around and be disordered. God's going to let them wander off into their sin. God's going to discipline. Sometimes he will discipline his people by letting them go for a while in their sin. And then by the end of the book, there's a new generation. He reorders them. He recounts them and reorders them on the plains of Moab right before they're going into the land. So just skim through the chapters there. Let's let's start in chapter 1. Um, he's going to start numbering them. So verse 2, take a census. Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel by their families, by their father's household, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward. So all these numbers are just the 20-year-olds, and they're going to be men. Whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their names. So God commands that the kings of Israel later will not be allowed to take a census because he doesn't want them to trust in their manpower and their military might. But when God calls you to do it, you do it. And so he has called them to go ahead and order all the tribes of Israel. Start by counting. So he goes through, he counts them. You'll see some big numbers. Verse 27, Judah has 74,600. Verse 28, 54,000 in, uh, in verse 29, Issachar. 40,000 there in verse 33, the tribe of Joseph. Manasseh, 32,000. So each paragraph, if your Bible has paragraphs here, ends with a big number. 62,000 in Dan. 41,000 in Asher. The total number is given in verse 46. 603,550. It's a very specific number. That's just men over 20. So how many women do you think if there's... Today there's a little bit more women born in the world every day than there are men. It's a very interesting biological fact. Um, So at least that many women over 20, right? And women outlive men usually, so probably more women. So now what are we up to? At least double this number. So two and a half, two and a half million? Is that right? Or one and a half? One and a half million. That's just over 20. Now what do we do with kids or young people? You know, 13 to 20. Probably another, how many kids do they have in the in the wilderness? How many kids do they have back then? Uh, probably, let's just say three Three times that for the number of kids. I mean, we're dealing with at least minimum three million, probably closer to five million, maybe more. The lifespans won't be as long as they are today. So three to five million. Three to five million people in the wilderness where you're going to see pictures in a minute. There's no food. There's really hardly any water. There's no plants. You You can't just walk along and pluck up a piece of fruit or vegetable. There's no animals to hunt. And you can already see where people are going to doubt God's word here. In this book especially. What's the big problem? You have 5 million people in the desert. And they're going to survive for 40 years. If you don't believe in the power of God, then what are people? how are people going to doubt this? It's not possible. It's not possible today, they say. Couldn't be possible back then especially. 
So we'll consider that. That's a big interpretive issue. What do we do about these large numbers? In uh, chapter 2, we get an ordering of how they're to camp. So look at chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Now those who camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah by their armies, the leader of the sons of Judah. And he goes through that. And then he goes to the south side in verse 10. There's tribes there. And then the tent of meeting shall be in the middle. Then verse 18, you have those tribes on the west side. Verse 25, on the north side. And they're to be numbered. All 603,550 are included, plus their wives, plus the children. So that's the top part of this graphic here. You can see the tabernacle is in the middle. And then you have around that, the Levites are camped and divided with the priests on the east and then the different groups of Levites around. Then further out, you're going to have to the north, the, the servants' sons, uh, Dan, Asher, Naphtali. So these were not the wives of Jacob, but his servants, when the wives were competing to see who could have more kids. Then on the east side, you have Leah's sons, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. And then Rachel's sons are on the west, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. Ephraim and Manasseh being uh, Joseph's sons. And then the disgraced sons, because of their sins, Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. I think this is, no, this is not in the MacArthur Study Bible. There's a different one in the MacArthur Study Bible. It's still the same layout. It doesn't have these titles like disgraced and Rachel's. This comes from another book. It's called The World and the Word. That's when they're camped, but then they have to move a lot. They're wandering around. They're moving from place to place. 10, 11, now in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of testimony. The sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So that's how they moved. When the cloud came up, that's God saying, time to go. And you followed the cloud. It would take off this pillar of cloud. And you followed it. And when it stopped, then you camped around it and set up the camp. This would be no easy thing. We think going camping now is troublesome. Imagine taking down this massive tabernacle. Then each family has to take their, their tent, their equipment, their furniture, their rugs, their items, their kids, their cattle, their horses, um, all the things that they own, and move constantly. Uh, sometimes they would be in one place for a while. Uh, so where were we? Verse 13. So they moved out from the first time, for the first time according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. So from Egypt to Sinai, they were probably very disorganized. You know, you watch some of the movies where they're showing that, and it, it would just been a mass of people all disorganized. They get the law, they get the commandments. Now God tells them how to organize their camp, and now He's going to tell them how to move. It's not just when they're camped out, but even when they're moving, they need to be in a certain order. Do you think God cares about order? Or is he disorderly? You guys just do what you want, you know? You all just have fun. That would be a huge mess. They wouldn't move quickly at all. You know, there goes the cloud, and then the two months later, people are catching up because everybody's getting lost and spread out. They're losing things along the way. God's a God of order. So he begins to order them here in chapter 10. The Ark of the Covenant will go first. The Shekinah glory, of course, leading the way. Then behind it, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, these are the stronger tribes, Judah being 
the one that the king will eventually come from. Then behind those three tribes, the tabernacle structure carried by the Gershonites and uh, Merorites. I've heard some interesting illustrations and sermons on this. I like one that I heard where, you know, the guy forgets to pull up a post because he's being lazy. I think it was a sermon on laziness. He forgets to take one of the posts with the temple. And they all get there and they're looking around for this one guy, you know. Where's Ernest? He didn't bring the post. We can't even set up the tabernacle, you know. And it's the whole sermon was on laziness, but it was a good illustration of how every person would be necessary. You were tasked with carrying something if you were one of the Levites. And you better bring it or they can't set up the place of worship. Then uh, Reuben, Simeon, Gad, and then the tabernacle furniture and utensils are carried by the Kohathites and then the rest of the tribes. The last six tribes would be down here in the back of the line. Probably had some military significance as well, although we don't read of a lot of attacks when they're on the move, God protecting them and such. That's probably what the camp would have looked like. This is an artist's representation here. You're up on a mountain. They're camped in a valley. You know, some people say, well, that's a cross. I I don't think we want to read symbolism. If it was a a true symbol of a cross that was trying to be pictured in numbers, I think the New Testament would tell us that. But certainly, it's very structured. It's very ordered. I don't know if that's what the pillar of cloud looked like. We don't really know. It was a cloud, and it was a pillar-type shape. And at night, it was a, a pillar of fire. But you can see how all the tents would have looked, how they would have been laid out. I'm thinking, how many valleys and flatland would would they have found to, to even camp like that? That takes a lot of space, doesn't it? Three to five million people. And there's a lot of big valleys, but that's that's massive. I mean, that's a city. A little tighter, I'm, I'm sure, than San Antonio would be, but that's bigger than the greater San Antonio area. A lot of fires at night, I'm sure. And, and I often wonder, how did you sleep with a pillar of fire, you know, in the middle of your camp? Your, your tent must be thick enough to block some of that. It's going to be bright outside. All right, so near the end of the book, I think it's in is it chapter 25. I didn't put down the reference here, but there's another count. So we're going to find out that they sin multiple times, but the main sin is going to be when they send spies into the land. They send out the spies. The spies come back. Most of them are scared. Two are not scared. And those two uh, get to go in to the land. But the rest of the spies are very fearful. They scare the people. The people say, we're not going. And God says, fine, you're not going. You're going to wander for 40 years. And you're all going to die, except for those two. Well, there's a recount at the end. Is that in 25? 26. 26, the census of a new generation. What's the difference? I think this comes from the MacArthur Study Bible. Why does God give another count? Well, there's been some changes. Some of the tribes have um, changed a bit. Reuben's reduced by 2,700. Simeon by 37,000. Probably due to the sin that Simeon participated in. Um, maybe in this chapter 25, the sin of Peor. They were involved with that and worshiping false gods and bringing women in that were Baal worshippers. Gad goes down 5,000. Judah's up a bit. Issachar's up 
almost 10,000. Zebulun, Manasseh, 20,000. Manasseh is going to be quite large. Then we've got Ephraim down a bit, Benjamin up 10,000. There, there's differences per tribe. And you know, you'd have to really read carefully through numbers to see why this might be. Some of it would just be speculation. But I think Simeon going down that big would indicate they were involved in some sin or sin pattern where many of them died off and were not replaced. They did not have children. Maybe they died before they had very many children. And so the big ones would be Simeon down, Manasseh going up. But in the end, it's pretty close to the 603,000. So it's not as if God wiped out his people. They're about the same size coming into the wilderness as they will be going out when they're counted again in in chapter 26. Here's a map of what's happening here. This is a little bit before, so this is more of the Exodus. They come out of Egypt. So let me step back so you guys can see that. Hopefully some of you can. They're coming out of Egypt, and if you remember our class on the Exodus, it's not clear where they went. Some say they went down here. That's the more common idea. And somewhere down here is Mount Sinai. And then they work their way back up and end up right here when they send spies into the land. So this is uh, Kadesh Barnea right here. This is where God's going to take them into the land and they send spies out to scout out the land. Others say they left Exodus more along the lines of just cutting straight across. Some say they left Egypt and sort of went through this part of the Mediterranean Sea. So the Reed Sea, what we call the Red Sea, but it's really the Reed Sea as part of the Mediterranean. And then they wander around and then come back here. No one really knows where Mount Sinai is. Of course, they built monasteries, the Catholics, the Orthodox churches early on. They'll tell you they know where it is, but it's not identifiable. There's a couple of good options. No one knows all the places that are mentioned later in Deuteronomy. It'll be a recounting of where they've wandered. No one actually knows where those are because you're just looking at desert. There's a little town here, and it's gone 100 years later. How do you find it 3,500 years later? But all accounts, they're going to get to Kadesh Barnea. And then from there, this one's really hard if you're very far away, but here's Kadesh Barnea. From there, they send the spies out. So the spies go here. And I think that's in... 13, but we'll come to it in a minute when we get to key chapters. Numbers 13, yeah. The spies go out, they come back. The land is rich. The land is rich, but what are they concerned about? Why do they come back all scared? They saw some tall guys, you know, giants. There's giants. I mean, they're, they're 5 million people with 600,000 fighting men, but they're scared. You know, there's these massive tall guys. You know, they even call them Nephilim. They're like the Nephilim of old before the flood. They're giants. We could never beat them. Which is essentially what? Doubting God. So God can travel with a pillar of fire. He can swallow up the whole army of Egypt. The most mighty army in the whole world. And then they're going to get right on the edge of the promised land and be scared of a few tribes with tall guys. It's doubting God. It shows their hearts. It's a test. And so they're scared. The people are scared. You know, we're, we're, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. They're so big. So God says, fine. 
um, you're going to wonder. So here they are, wandering around in this area for 40 years. Then when they're done, after the 40 years, God takes them up here. Um, at Near the end of the 40 years, there's a, a couple of battles here, and then they go back this way. They grumble some more because they're going to have to now take the long route. Um, they can't just go straight up like the spies went. Now they've got to go way around here. This is where the book of Joshua will pick up, but uh, and, and Deuteronomy as well. So they've got to go the long way around. They're scared. Edom also won't let them pass through peacefully. So they're just, they're just not going to be happy with everything God does. That's what it would look like in the wilderness of Zin. I think that King James called it the wilderness of sin, which is very interesting. Um, transliteration from the Hebrew Zin into sin, because it is a wilderness of sin for them. And they just wandered around. So that's what it looks like today. Nice place to go. Y'all go to vacation there all the time? How would you like to walk across that with some sandals? How long did a pair of sandals last in those days? Not very long, especially when you hit those rocks. And your, you know, your cattle and your horses would have bloody hoofs and hooves, and then they would, you know, be lame and that's not going to be a very pleasant place to travel through. But yet we're going to find out none of those things happen to these people. Even though God's punishing them, even though he's going to basically wipe out a whole generation, they never suffered a lack of clothing, a lack of food. So let's look at some key chapters here. I'm just skimming along in your Bible. Chapter 6. This is a Nazarite vow. We'll see this come up later. Samson. It's thought that maybe Paul in the New Testament takes a Nazarite vow. Um, again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. Say to them, When a man or woman makes a special vow, you're not required to do this, but if you say, I'm going to dedicate myself to the Lord, I'm going to do such and such for the Lord. The vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine. No razor, verse 5, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled which he separated himself to the Lord. So don't cut your hair and don't drink wine. That was the big part of it. And then at some point, usually the vow would go ahead and, and be over with. You would go offer a sacrifice. Then you could cut your hair. Then you could drink wine or vinegar again. But with Samson, it appears that he's supposed to keep that going. And then when his hair gets cut, you know, he loses his supernatural strength. That comes up later in Judges. All right, um, Numbers 11. This is where the problems start. So 1 through 10 is all about counting the people ordering the tribes in the camp, where they're supposed to camp, uh, how they're supposed to travel, where they're, what they're supposed to do when they are moving. But you get to chapter 11 and the grumblings start. Why are they grumbling? Well, let's just look here. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them, 
and consume some of the outskirts of the camp. Just from complaining? I mean, God doesn't punish people, does he? They just complain. We don't even know what they said. doesn't say. doesn't say. They just complain. Maybe they complain because they had to move out, you know? Why can't we just stay here and turn this place into a paradise? I mean, who knows? Who knows what they complained about? But God's sending fire to burn the outskirts, the people who are furthest away from the tabernacle. The people therefore cried out to Moses. Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So Moses is an interceder like Jesus will be for us. Moses intercedes for them. He's a mediator. So the name of that place was called Tibera because the fire of the Lord burned among them. I like this. The rabble. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. There's a big controversy right now about John MacArthur and some things he said about Beth Moore. And then, you know, even if people don't like Beth Moore, they say, well, MacArthur did not have a good tone. But in the Bible, you know, they're rabble. Jesus calls them sons of hell with the Pharisees. And then there's a term in the New Testament that are, that's called sons of Belial, which gets translated into our Bibles as just worthless people. It's in the Old Testament too. They're just worthless. These are just rabble, God says. Not like he doesn't care about his creation, but they're rabble rousers. They're complainers. They're grumblers. We can all have a tendency to do that. These seem to be more of an unbelieving group that are gathering together to cause trouble. So I'll bring up the MacArthur controversy just to let you know the Bible has strong language against um, false teachers and strong language against people who try to cause trouble among God's house. Also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? You know, they've been been out there for a year, over a year. They're not starving. How are we going to survive? We remember the fish which we used to have to eat free in Egypt. We just go down to the river, catch a fish. Now we're out in this desert. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. They even miss the onions and the garlic, you know. They're just tired of eating that, that old manna out there in the desert. But now our appetite is gone. We have nothing. There's nothing at all except this manna, which is the bread of God from heaven. But just goes to show you, as humans, we'll complain about anything. We can live in America and have a nice house and have air conditioning and have our pantries full, and we're still upset because God didn't give us everything we wanted. You know, garlic. Don't even have garlic. Now the manna was like coriander. See, so they described the manna. And then Moses has a complaint. Moses heard the people weeping through their families, each man at the doorway of his tent. The anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you been so hard on your servant? And Moses is going to complain a bit. Why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? I, I don't want to put up with this people. A bunch of complainers. I want to represent them. Was it not I who conceived? Was it I who conceived all these people? You know, I didn't birth these people. They're not even in my family. You know, I have my own family to worry about, he's saying. Was it I who brought them forth? That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore. I don't want to take care of these babies all the way there. Where am I to get meat to give all this people? So even the leader here is, He's got some complaints. He's grumbling a bit. Now it's probably just momentary. You know, he's a, he intercedes for them. He'll do it again. 
But the complaining of the people can even come up to the leaders and affect them. For they weep before me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people, because it is too burdensome for me. So if you are going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once, if I have found favor in your sight. Do not let me see my wretchedness. He did this similar thing on Mount Sinai when he came down, and they were all um, you know, partying. Just, just kill me, God, instead of kill the people. But now he's more complaining. Uh, just go ahead and kill me now, so I don't have to keep this up. Too burdensome. And so what happens is um, he gets 70 elders to help him out. But it doesn't stop there. Chapter 12, we have another grumbling event, this time from Moses' own sister, Miriam. Miriam. Chapter 12, then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses, not just his sister, but his brother, the high priest Aaron. The high priest, the one who went with Moses to see Pharaoh, the one who was a spokesperson for Moses at times when Moses said he couldn't speak. So they grumbled against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. It's probably the first, what, what racists in America would call interracial marriage. There's really no races in the Bible. There's just one race, the human race, different amounts of melanin, skin color. But a Cushite woman would have been a black woman uh, in those days. I don't think that's their issue so much with her. It's that, they've, that he's married someone, his first wife probably died, and he's married someone outside of Israel. And he's told... Uh, basically told his sister and brother, I don't care. This is my wife, you know, family feuds going on here. And so, hey, they're just going to stir up trouble. I mean, it could be because she was from Cush, which would, today would be Ethiopia. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? No, we're, we're Moses' brother and sister. See, the real issue was with his wife, but that's not what they say, do they? Because there's no case that can be made about marrying a Cushite. God has not commanded that they can't marry a Cushite at this point. And so they don't come forth and say, God, he married a Cushite, please. No, they, they go somewhere else with it, right? He's not the only leader. We can lead too. The Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, you three come out of the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, stood at the door of the tent. He called Aaron and Miriam. When he had them both come forward, he says, Hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So sure, Miriam, sure, Aaron, you know, I, I prophesy through other prophets in Israel. But they have a dream. They have a vision. They hear me off somewhere else. Moses speaks to me face to face. As a friend speaks to his friend. He's the only one, and you should have respect for him. Why would you speak against him? Why would you speak against him? So the anger of the Lord burned against him, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn. So the whole cloud, the pillar of clouds gone now. Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. So she has to serve for a time outside the camp. She has leprosy. She's outside until that uh, comes back 
probably she led this. She went to her brother Aaron and said, hey, I don't like that woman he married. And let's see if we can't get the people to throw off Moses and will be the rulers. 13 is where the spies go out. Um, they, they come back. They're so scared. Verse 25, they return from spying out the land. At the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron, to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness, at Paran, at Kadesh. They brought back word to them. Uh, look at verse 27. They told them, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. Cities are fortified. They're very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Anak was the giant kind of guy, tall guy, Goliath, you know, eight foot. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, the desert area. And the Hittites are there, and the Jebusites are there, and the Amorites are there. There's all these people there. We thought God was taking us to a place we could just walk in. Canaanites are there by the sea. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses, said we should by all means go up and take possession, for we will surely overcome it. So Caleb has faith, faith that God will give them the power. God will give them the strength. But the people won't listen. Um, They come back in verse 31. We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours and inhabits it. It's just going to devour us up. Everybody we saw in it are men of great size. We also saw the Nephilim there. Sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Well, that's not going to make God happy because the whole nation just doubted God. He saved them. He did all these mighty things. Chapter 14. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Better to just die of starvation. Better to die of, you know, not having enough water, just stumbling and cracking our head on a rock than have to be killed by the sword, watch our kids be chopped up. Would it not be better for us just to go back to Egypt? Our wives are going to be taken from us, our little ones, he says, or they say. So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. We're just going to rebel, mutiny. Let's pick somebody else. And then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly. And Joshua, he's one of the two, Joshua and Caleb are the two that, that spies that went up and told the truth. Joshua has something to say. Moses speaks to the Lord here, and then the Lord pardons and rebukes. You have that heading in here, verse 20. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word, talking to Moses, but indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. So he's pardoned them. He's not going to wipe out the nation. He's going to let them live a normal lifespan. But verse 22 Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. 
but my servant Caleb. And he goes on to talk about Joshua as well. That's it. Their families will come in. Everyone else in that generation will die off. Chapter 22 through 25, we have this interesting prophet named Balaam. We have Balak, the king of Moab. And then we have the talking donkey, which is an interpretive issue that we'll look at. Key passages. Let's look at a few key passages. So what's the lesson you're seeing so far in Numbers? What are some of the things we've seen? Don't go against God. Don't grumble. There's going to be more grumbling. There's going to be more complaining. They haven't learned their lesson yet. Of course, God is merciful. Yeah. He doesn't wipe out the whole people. This is often quoted, and this is a prayer that the Jews pray even to this day. Aaron, the high priest, he prays. You probably heard this at the end, maybe, of like a Presbyterian church. We'll close in their benediction with this. 6.24. All right. Uh, starting in verse 22, 6.22, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. So God tells Aaron to pray this over the people. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you or upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I then will bless them. So it's a prayer, it's a reminder, it's an invocation before they order themselves and head out. God's going to bless you. God's going to keep you. God's going to be gracious to you. Again, pointing forward to the gospel. Chapter 16. So they're wondering, they're wondering, they're wondering. And we have another rebellion. This one's bigger. Korah's rebellion. God's destruction of Korah. His followers, he opens up the ground and swallows them up. This really scares the people. So the fear of God is instilled in the people. Uh, 1631. This is kind of the end of what happened. So Korah rises up and as he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them. So Moses, you know, um, let's just back up and read some of it. Verse 25, Then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abiram with the elders of Israel following him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, Depart from, depart now from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belongs to them or you will be swept away in all their sin. That's a warning. You know, if I'm, if I'm you know, one of, these, one of these men are my ancestors or one of my family members, my great uncle, I'm going to pick up my tent real quietly and start moving away. Because he says, before the destruction comes, he says, everybody else, don't get near their tents. Or you're going to be swept away in all their sin. So they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the doorway of their tents, along with their wives, their sons, their little ones. You know, what's the big deal? Why are y'all moving away from us? What, y'all, y'all people are crazy. Moses says, by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds. So Korah had had raised up a rebellion against Moses. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, so if they just live a life and then die normally, then the Lord has not sent me. You want to know if God sent me, Moses says? They'll live a long life and die, then God didn't send me. But 
if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing that's about to happen, and the ground opens up his mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. So you can imagine there's this quarrel going on. You know, who's right? The Democrats or the Republicans, you know? Not that Moses is necessarily either one of them, but, you know, the people are just everyday people, and they're going about their business. And they realize Moses is a man. He can mess up. So maybe Moses has messed up. Maybe this guy Korah, maybe he has something to say. Let's hear it, Korah. So Moses says, well, you want to know who's, who's who? We'll let God decide. Verse 31, as he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open. The earth opened its mouth, swallowed them up, their households, all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol. And the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All Israel who were around them fled at their outcry. And they said, the earth may swallow us up. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed 250 men who were offering the incense. God's, God's not messing around here. You don't rebel against the Lord and have no consequences. And so this is his people. They're supposed to be holy amongst them. And they're throwing off their leader that God has appointed, that God meets with. And God came and swallowed them up alive. That would be terrifying just to watch. You know, earthquakes happen nowadays and how terrifying that is. But to be right there watching and all these people just get, go down to the ground and they're swallowed up alive with everything they own. Then there's murmuring. Then there's a plague all in chapter 16. And the plague ends up killing 14,000. Look at verse 49. So people are so scared of what happened. They start complaining again. They didn't learn their lesson. A plague comes. 14,700, besides those who died on account of Korah. So that was another 250 at least, almost 15,000 people here died. God's people. We don't know what their heart was like, but God had called them his people Israel, and he's killed 15,000 of them. Not done yet. Chapter 21, they still are going to grumble. They're going to complain. 21 verse 4. He's going to ascend fiery serpents. They set out from the Mount uh, Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And so the people became impatient because of the journey. So they, they're getting ready now to go. And uh, this is, I believe, a, a new generation. Not the new generation yet. But they're getting ready to go into the land. They're getting closer. And they set out. What do they do? Well, they can't go through Edom because the Edomites won't let them. And God's not going to wipe out the Edomites. The Edomites come from Esau. That was a a son of Jacob. So they're not going to do that. Um, Son of Isaac, sorry. And then, uh, so they're going to go around the long way and they're going to complain about it. We don't want to do this. People spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water, and we loathe this miserable food. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Are they serpents on fire? This is a minor interpretive issue, I guess, but we're not quite sure what these are. These are poisonous snakes. God just brought a massive amount, are, and, and their bite is like fire. 
Um, one ancient Greek writer talked about fiery serpents that flew in the desert lands. Uh, Herodotus. Some think he, he made that up. Um, there is some textual indication that, that maybe that's a speculative issue, but whatever it was was awful. Many people died. So they came back and they repented. We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord. And you please intercede for us, intercede with the Lord, that he may remove the serpents from us. So I don't think we know how many people died, but how would you like to wake up in your tent and have a fiery serpent biting you? So Moses, to stop it, he um, builds this bronze serpent and puts it up on a pole, and all the people who have been bitten by the snakes can be healed now. And Jesus will point to that and say, just like Moses lifted up the serpent, I will be lifted up before all men. Analogy there is they can come to be healed internally like the people of Israel could be healed physically. All right, last one. This is a, a sin at Peor. We get the priestly covenant from this. So they're not done yet. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to sacrifices of their own gods, and they ate and they bowed down to their gods. So this is a PG-13 um, issue here. Verse 3, So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor. The Lord was angry against Israel. So what they do? Well, they decided to have a few sacrifices to the false god Baal in this place called Peor. And they ate and they bowed down to their gods. They're almost there and they're going to do this. It's, you know, we think that's so stubborn, but then we turn around and sin every day. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges, each of you, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to be all of pure. So go ahead. Each of you, judges, go amongst your little tribe group, find those who are worshiping the false gods, and kill them. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman. So there's all these different tribes around the area that are worshiping false gods. And one guy says, you know what? I don't care. They might be killing people, but I'll get away with it. I'm going to go grab me a Midianite woman and bring her in, show her off. He comes in the sight of Moses with this woman and the sight of all the congregation. So that means he's bragging about it. He's showing off. I'm not scared of you guys. You know, I got me a Midianite woman. While they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. So Phinehas is a priest. He's very upset. He arose from the midst of the congregation. He took a spear in his hand. He went after the man of Israel into the tent he pierced both of them through. The man of Israel and the woman through the body with one spear. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague, 24,000. 24,000 and a plague. That's not just the judges executing people. This is a God sending a plague. Why? Because they're worshiping false gods. They're committing sexual immorality. And they're bragging about it. They're showing off. This guy walks in front of everybody taking this woman into his tent. Phineas is the only one who gets up and does something about it. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, and he's going to now bless Phineas. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath. He stopped my wrath from the sons of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them. 
so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace. This is a covenant that God gives. And it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood. Perpetual means what? Forever. Forever. Because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. So Jesus is not from this line. Um, this is not, Jesus is a high priest, of course, but he's not fulfilling this covenant. Uh, it's, it's thought that this covenant will come back into play during the millennial kingdom and the temple that Ezekiel describes. But we won't go into that. You'll have to listen to my um, theology class on the covenants. That's on the website. Key people, there's only really two big ones. Balaam, a heathen prophet who, when consulted by Balak, king of Moab, became conceited and greedy. He's halted by an angel, commanded to speak only on behalf of God. And then Joshua, who's going to have a whole book named after him. Moses' servant and successor, great military leader who led the people into the promised land. A couple of commentaries. The first one's a little more in-depth. Dennis Cole, Numbers. I've recommended the New American Commentary series a few times. There's not Hebrew words in there. It's all translated into English. It's more in-depth. A little smaller book is John D. Curid Numbers from the Evangelical Study series. Okay, three issues. We got ten minutes. This one's, they're all, uh, well, the first and third one's pretty easy. The large numbers. I already talked about those. 603,000 men over 20. At least 3 million, probably 5 million people. What do we do with those numbers? How can they survive? It must be made up. So we have all these different views. The first view, A, is a literal and precise. It is actual, real number. It's The first subset of A would be, that's the real number of the people in the wilderness. Others say, well, we can't quite say that because there's no archaeological evidence in the desert. So we're conservative, but we're going to go with a Davidic generation. It must be a literal number. It's an actual number of people, but it's actually the census that David took, you know, when the plague came upon uh, Israel and it got stopped in Jerusalem. David sinfully took a census. B, Gematria. Gematria is, you know, like the Bible code. You seen that book, the Bible code? That's where you're supposed to take these numbers and figure out what it really means. And so you lay out all the numbers and you translate, you know, uh, the number equals a letter in Hebrew and you spell out with all these numbers different words in Hebrew and you come up with some weird stuff. Gematria is uh, kind of a Jewish mystical thing. So you know that's not going to be right. Nobody's going with that, I hope, right? Y'all never heard of the Bible code? Y'all go to Barnes & Noble? Look in the Christian section. It's been there for like 20 years. You know, the Bible code, it's like a crossword puzzle. You just go down through the Bible, circle these letters, it makes up a new word. Hey, look, there's Jesus in the Old Testament. I'm the only weird person who looks at that kind of stuff. Okay, so I'm just going to help you out and tell you it's not going to be that one. Um, well, conservatives who really struggle with archaeology, you know, they want archaeology to back it up. They say there's no archaeological evidence. So we'll take it as it is there, but this word... Elip, which is the Hebrew word for number, really doesn't mean men. It just is describing, you know, this is actually the word for thousand. So if there's 10,000, 
it was really just 10 military units. Or just a clan, you know, a thousand people is a clan. So that, that helps them get the numbers down, right? Or these are the number of chiefs, you know, 10,000, there's 10 chiefs. That doesn't work, though, because you have 603,000 at the bottom as a total. So even if you did that for each tribe, then what do you do with this big number? Plus, that's not the way the word is used. It's not the context. You know, others say symbolic. This would be more of a liberal view, symbolic. Doesn't really mean what you think it means. Others say, you know, there's a lot of people, but God, God inspired Moses to make it hyperbole. You know, it's really just this small number that gets hyper, hyperbole into some large number. I like F. How about this? <laughs> number is based on a system familiar to the readers, but unknown to us. In other words, they knew what it meant, but we don't. And then G is just, you know, textual corruption. <laughs> Somebody changed the, the words later and entered in some of those numbers, you know. Some scribe a thousand years later got hold of a Bible, wrote in some numbers, and that stuck. What do you guys think? Who wants to go with A1? It's a literal number. There's no reason to not take it literal. Anytime in the Bible you have a number, you take it literal unless there's a reason not to. And God will tell you the reason not to around the context. So Deuteronomy 8.4, that's the next book. Look at that real quick. This helps us. So why don't they find archaeological evidence? There's no camps. There's no fire pits. There's no tools. That's the main thing they look for is tools, metal tools, clothing items. 8.4, your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. They walked across all those rocks, hot sand. Their sandals lasted. Why don't you find archaeological evidence? 29.5, Deuteronomy. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink, in order that you might know that I am the Lord your God. They don't even have anything to wear out to throw in the trash heap. There's no reason for a dump in the desert to throw your trash, to throw your old pots that bust and your old shoes. You know, there's, there's no reason for it. They're not going to find archaeological evidence. Plus, it's miraculous. You know, why, why, how can five million people survive in the desert? They can't. It's miraculous. It's God's supernatural power. That's the whole point of numbers. God took care of them, even though they grumbled, even though they were sinners. This one is interesting. We can't solve it, but we should at least mention it. Because, you know, modern day sensibilities, really, they, they don't like this verse. Uh, Numbers 5.11. This is a, a man's jealous of his wife. And this isn't, he's just bickering and mad at her, so he wants to get her in trouble. He really has a good cause for thinking that she might have committed adultery. But no one's there. No one saw, you know, no one's going to witness because there's no one there. It's just her and this other guy. God is holy. His people are supposed to be holy. And adultery is, is a large sin in God's sight because he often uses marriage as a way to teach people of the connection that we have with him and that we have with Christ in the New Testament. And marriage is what the the people, the foundation of the society is founded upon. It's got to be founded upon a marriage and a society with children. 
And he's not happy about adultery. So what do you do when, when this happens? Well, God's the only one who knows what's in people's hearts, and he's the one who sees all things. So speak to the sons of Israel. Say to them, if any man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, and a man has intercourse with her and is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, although she has defiled herself, and there's no witness against her, she's not been caught in the act. If a spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, this is a real godly kind of jealousy here. Or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife when she has not defiled herself, the man shall then bring his wife to the priest. So that in that case, he thinks he's right, but he's actually going to be end up being wrong. He's accused his wife of something she didn't do. How do you know? Come before the priest. He's going to do all these things with holy water. In the end, there's going to be some ashes from the altar mixed in the water. She's going to drink it. She's going to drink it, and then something's going to happen to her. Let's skip down to uh, verse 27. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall come about. If she has defiled herself and has been unfaithful to her husband, the water will bring a curse that will go into her and cause bitterness. Her abdomen will swell and her thigh will waste away. The woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, she will then be free and conceive children. This is the law of jealousy. So what's the jealousy ordeal? It's not man testing, but it's God testing. And God knows the heart. He's seen all things. Husband doesn't know what happened. He feels like something happened. Uh, he has a good cause, maybe. Men can't decide it in the court. They have judges, but they can't. They don't know. God's a witness, though. Bring them before the priest. This, this ordeal happens. She gets a big belly and a, this would be abnormally large, quickly, suddenly. This isn't years and years. This is suddenly things swell out. She can't have children anymore. So something's happened in the womb. She's not allowed to have children. That's the curse. That's the punishment. And she's going to be scowled at probably by the people. There's going to be that stigma following her. Could she still be saved? Could she still get into heaven? Could she repent? Yeah. But... God is amongst his people in this cloud, in this fire. And he can't tolerate sin. Last one. It's quite a large one. We'll probably start with this one next week. Why don't you read for your homework 22 through 24. That'll help you, I think. Um, Balaam's an interesting guy. I've already told you what the right answer is there, huh? Yeah, I didn't have one. Okay. He's a false prophet. But some say he's a true prophet because he claims God. He uses God's personal name, Yahweh. He... Uh, he says, it's my God. I'm speaking for God. God does speak through him. So is he a true prophet or a false prophet? Or is it just neutral? We don't know. So I'll start there next week before we get into Deuteronomy. Go through that a bit. I encourage you to read it. I think it's an interesting story. Uh, the New Testament has a lot to say about Balaam and those references that I put up there. And uh, some people today will even say, hey, what do you mean God can't speak through us today? What do you mean I can't prophesy? God even used a donkey to prophesy in the Old Testament. God can work in mysterious ways today. Is that a good analogy? Is that a, something we want to cite? You know, I don't think it is. And I'll talk more about that next week. Lord, it's been good to look at the book of Numbers this morning. Help us to learn a lesson about grumbling. Help us to see that complaining and grumbling against you is it's no good. It's bad. It's it's sinful. It won't help us. It hurts us. Let us not grumble. Let us not complain. But let us pray. 
before your throne with Christ as our mediator. Let us pray for help. Let us pray for a changed heart, a changed attitude. Let us pray that you will see to our needs and we have nothing to complain about. I pray that we would not worry, that we would not complain as Christians, but we would seek your will and learn from the scriptures about the consequences of grumbling. We ask this in the name of our Lord. Amen.